we are in the midst of what is being called cancel culture. Uh, People are being first ridiculed, and then they're canceled. If you wanted to come up with a grand conspiracy to cancel God, where would you start? Isn't it true that the place where you would start would be with creation? Separate any thought that the living God created anything. By the way, very true, soldiering through another round of uh, chemo with cancer comeback. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, uh, nobody will hug you or get around you, but we're, I'm, I'm glad you're here. May your heart be encouraged. We're praying for you, Barry. If you want to cancel God, separate God from creation. Um, at the heart of the plan you'd want to work is to just sever him. If you sever him from, cre- uh, from creation, then he is easier, easierly dismissed. In, if Psalm 19 is true that Sharon read, and of course it is, then the plan to cancel God through separating him from creation is hopeless. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day into day, it utters with its speech, and there's no place on earth where its voice is not heard. You can't cancel the creator if the creator made everything that is, including those who want to cancel the creator. Wow, haven't we tried hard to cancel him since 1869 in the publishing of Darwin's book, The Origin of Species. Think of all the creation. Think of God and our response to him as we come to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. We are studying this letter in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books, the Gospels, then the book of Acts, and then at the very front, at the forefront of the letters that Paul wrote is this expose on the good news of God. That's what he calls it in Romans 1.1. He introduces the gospel of God, the good news of God. This is God's news to humanity, and it's very good news. Now, in order to appreciate the good news, you have to look down the barrel of the bad news, and that is that you and I don't have the right stuff to be accepted by God. But in the gospel, we just looked at it last week, there is revealed the kind of, the sort of righteousness that God is willing to give to us as a gift in the gospel of God and this news about Jesus Christ. So we come now to Romans 1.18 where Paul moves into the body of the epistle. Let me read these five verses to you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. But 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here, the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to go two different directions. I want to use these five verses as a tutorial on who is God And what is our heart like? And listen to five parts of this tutorial on our God and our hearts. Then secondly, this text and these five verses ask us three questions about living. The Bible is not given by God to satisfy our curiosity or give the preacher something to talk about on Sunday morning to occupy time. It is for living. Actually, it takes on its intended power when we seek to live it out. So what difference do these five verses make? This question, this passage will ask us three questions about our living. But first, what does the glory of creation teach us about God and our own hearts? To start this treatise on the good news, that's what the book of Romans is, Paul goes back to creation. So in the beginning, as he starts his explanation, he goes back to the beginning for his explanation in creation. Now there are five parts of this tutorial on God and our own hearts. Part number one, in all of creation, God made the truth about himself very evident. Look at verses 18 19 and 20. Notice particularly in verse 19, he uses the word plain. God made it obvious. It's plain. It's right before our eyes. The invisible God made himself visible and known in what he made. It is said that you can look at the great work of Rembrandt, the painter, and you can see something about Rembrandt in what he has painted. You can look at a picture and get some idea of who Rembrandt was by looking at his great work. So it is with God. We gain insight into his power and into his divine nature by seeing and observing and taking notice and absorbing the glories of what he has created. Now, there is God, the creator, and there is creation, what God has created. God is not what he created. That's pantheism. God is not in what he created. That's panentheism. God is separate from what he has created, and yet his nature is seen 
in the very things that he did create in the glories of our creation. Verse 20, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. I remember the, the first glimpse I had of the field, depth of field and the horizon that the Grand Canyon uh, gives. Uh, we rode up from Williams, Arizona on the train and as a family disembarked and got on the platform, had to walk up a little grade and then wham, it hits you. It just unfolds before you like a panorama and a depth of field that you've never seen before. Uh, the different colors in the stratified rock as the sun hits it at different times of the day. It is stunning. It's glorious. And when you first see it, if you haven't seen it before, it's like, wow, that's really cool. That's really beautiful. That's glorious. And imagine this. That wasn't a work of creation. That was a work of judgment. <laughs> As the floods recede quickly after the flood, it cuts a hole in the ground. And if God can do that in judgment, all the glories of uh, him saying, let there be and there was, and it was so, and it was all very good, and it was very glorious. And it said something about the nature of our God. Jill Briscoe, uh, in a former generation, a women's author and speaker, a wonderful lady, grew up in Liverpool with the Beatles, uh, in England, she was in that Swiss Alps as an adolescent, an unbeliever, disinterested in God, and decided one morning she'd get up early. And she'd get in the great mountain vista, and she'd sit there and watch the sunrise. She just thought that'd be something cool to do. And so she did. And as that day dawned, and that sun rose over the majestic mountains that were there, she was overcome with a sense that someone is at home in the universe. That this place could not have created itself. And there was a glory to the beginning of that mood. She was moved to conclude there is a God. Further, she was moved based on an inkling of what she had heard before. That this God was interested in her. And that morning, watching the sunrise, she invited God through his son, Jesus Christ, into her life and began to follow him. But that first sense that there was someone at home in the universe came from the glory of her watching the beginning of a new day. A surgeon wrote to a preacher in London named John Stott years ago and said this, I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell, as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night, the coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence for ultimate purpose. The German astronomer, mathematician, Johannes Kepler said, when staring at the starry heavens. The undevout astronomer is mad. And what he was saying was, he's not angry. He said, you have to be crazy to look at the consistency of all the starry heavens and the glory of all the lights and conclude, huh, 
That just created itself. He said, you have to be mad. You have to be crazy, not to be devout. That is to finish your scientific inquiry on your knees, singing the doxology, acknowledging glory to God. In all of creation, God made the truth about himself very plain. Don't miss that word plain in verse 19. Now, the second part of this tutorial is this. Now that he has made everything plain in creation, no one has an excuse to conclude there is no God. Look at verse 20. It's right here. So what are the implications of the world having a creator who put his indelible marks in all of their glory on his creation? Verse 20, so they, that's all of Adam's children, that's us, so they are without an excuse. In creation, God took every vestigial of an excuse to conclude there is no God away from our hearts. Intuitively, we know and understand that the world did not create itself. There's a creator. And what he says is his eternal power, his divine nature is seen. God is big. Recently, in the last six months, after a lot of money and a lot of delays, we finally shot this satellite up that has a really cool reflecting shield and a really powerful lens and we're sending it into deep space and it's starting to send pictures back. In the last two weeks, we have pictures of deep space that we've never, ever seen before. And the astronomers who track all this stuff, they're stunned. They're stunned because of what seems like in space an infinite series of galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. God is big. His eternal nature, his power is seen in what he has made. Now, Eric, I'll tell you what, though. You, you, uh, what about all the people who never heard God's good news? Aha, what are you going to do with that one? That doesn't even make any sense. I, I, I don't believe in God because, you know, there, there, there's uh, somebody living in... Uh, Bora Bora, nobody's ever told him about Jesus. How can God be fair there? Where is he going to be in eternity? Well, what does the text say? The text says to a person, everyone who's ever lived on this created earth is, well, let's use Paul's words, they are without excuse. Nobody will be able to tell God on the great day, hey, you never said anything to me about yourself. Now that, that's not going to wash. Because every day, according to Psalm 19, the glory of God, the distinctive nature of his power is seen in this great creation. It says everyone is without an excuse intuitively, we know something about creation. All of us know something about that. 
Kent Hughes said, it takes a concerted act of the will to deny the vastly powerful God who made and sustains all of creation. You know, it was a Russian guy who wrote the lyrics to the song, How Great Thou Art. He was in Romania, in the Carpathian Mountains. And he wrote this. When I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. You know what his response to all that was? Then sings my soul, how great thou art. In J.P. Moreland's book, Scientism and Secularism, he says this. If gravity's force were infinitesimally stronger, all stars would burn too quickly to sustain life. If ever so slightly weaker, all stars would be too cold to support life-bearing planets. If the ratio of electron to proton mass were slightly larger or smaller, the sort of chemical bonding required to produce self-replicating molecules could not obtain. The same is true for the electromagnetic force in the universe. If a strong nuclear force were slightly stronger, then the nuclei essential for life would be too unstable. If it were slightly weaker, no elements but hydrogen would form. If the rate of the universe's expansion had been smaller by one part in a hundred, thousand, million, million, the universe would have recollapsed and could not form or sustain life. Quantum laws are precisely what they need to be to prevent electrons from spiraling into atomic nuclei. If the earth took more than 24 hours to rotate, temperatures on our planet would be too extreme between sunrise and sunset. If the rotation of the earth were slightly shorter, wind would move at a dangerous velocity. If the oxygen level on our planet were slightly less, we would suffocate. If it were slightly more, spontaneous fire would erupt. If you didn't know better, you'd think this place was finely tuned by an awesome and wise creator to sustain the very life we enjoy. And we'd walk around singing more about how great thou art. The third part of this tutorial is this. We suppress the self-evident truth about God. We suppress the self-evident truth about God. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do to the truth? They suppress the truth. Now, they're called suppressors. Some people buy them for their guns. They stick them on the barrel. And they're called suppressors for a good reason. You may know them by another name, a silencer. It suppresses the sound what one could call the natural sound, the obvious sound, what results. It suppresses that sound when the suppressor is attached to the barrel. It is designed to muzzle the barrel's sound. 
That's the picture. That man, notwithstanding the self-evident things that are clear about God, muzzles them, suppresses them, silences them. So what is our natural response to the truth? Here's the verb, suppression. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Now this is right along the lines of what Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Let's put those two together. By the way, this is super helpful in evangelism. And we just come out of outreach. Romans 1, 16 and 17. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Paul saying in Romans 13, 14, 15 and 16, I have an obligation. We have an obligation to share it. Was anyone in the room frustrated in any attempt you've had to share the gospel? It's like, you know, I read it. It's a a powerful message, a powerful to save. I'm sharing the gospel. What gives? What is the natural response to a person who hears the gospel? Here's what it is. They suppress the self-evident truth. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's why the number one ingredient that makes the most difference in outreach and evangelism is not how cool we are at telling the story and, well, we need to sharpen our ability in a brief elevator speech in an attractive way to communicate the gospel. I'm not against that. But if we lean on that and say what's going to really make the difference is I'm going to drag them out of suppressing the truth. I'm going to drag them out of consider this foolish. And voila, they're just going to, bam, I'm going to get them. No, you're not. Because their response to what we're saying is suppression. Their response to what we're saying is that's foolish. That's why the great work of sharing the gospel begins on our knees. And we beg God to change the heart. Because he's still using the message to take them from suppressing the self-evident truth and considering this foolish to an awakening that dawns on them, hey, wait a minute, somebody is at home in the universe, but it gets better than that. This somebody could not love us more and be more for us. And this somebody was willing to demonstrate that love by offering his son on Good Friday to resolve entirely and completely our sin at the cross so we could be forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, I want you to know that you're a long-time suppressor. You're a long-time one who considered that foolish. But maybe it's like, hey, Eric, wait a minute. I I don't think I consider it foolish anymore. I'm now hearing it. I want you to know that that's a telltale sign that God's at work in your heart. I'll tell you what, Eric. They got a will. I just throw it out to them. It's up to them. Well, you can have that view. Here's what Paul says. They suppress the self-evident truth about the gospel. That's their response. They consider it foolish. But, oh, God gets in the middle of that and uses the power of the gospel to open their heart to himself. 
Second thing, we learn something about ourselves now. Um, the third, we suppress the self-evident truth about God. Fourthly, we trade the pursuit of God for the pursuit of our idols and created things. It was Augustine who said, look at verses 22 and 23, the key verb's going to be exchanged. And he's going to use it again later to say we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Here, we exchange the glory, verse 23, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We trade God out for what we believe to be something better. We trade the pursuit of God for the pursuit of our idols. It's a horrible trade. You ever been involved in a horrible trade? We trade the glory of the immortal God. The word immortal means ever-living. That word was really vivid to me this week as I passed through the ninth anniversary of my father's death. It's the singular time in my life when I faced great sadness. I didn't do well in the midst of it, and I miss my dad. But I had to come to the grips with the fact that my dad was mortal. And as he waned, I realized my dad was going to die, and I hated it. I pushed back against it. But it was inexorable, and it came. My dad was mortal. My great hero, the one I leaned on as a little boy growing up, and we spent so much time together, but uh, he's mortal. But here we have one who is immortal and who created everything that is. And yet we foolishly exchange him for the veneration of created things. It's ridiculous. They aren't going to last. Remember, Jesus said, moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break in and steal. That's what happens to all those created things. Again, Augustine, our hearts are idle factories. And please, notice the downward spiral in verse 21 that begins. Although they knew God, they were living in this created world, they could see it. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. We're going to come back to that before we leave. But they became futile in their thinking. We must allow the word of God to shape our thoughts about God and our thoughts about ourselves. It's futile to think it's a great trade to trade out God for some temporal veneration that's not going to last. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools thinking they were wise all along. Wow. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's amazing what we use as God substitutes, our idols, created things, replacements. We want to lay hold of something that is immortal, that will never die, that is everlasting. That will always be. Now, sometimes a professional sports league, the players will go on strike. And the owners will get mad and they'll say, well, we're going to run the league anyway. And so while the players, it usually lasts for about 10 days, but they go ahead and say, oh, we don't need you. We'll just start up with these other players. And so they'll get replacements. And it's laughable what, you know, what what they put out there. Because everybody knows they are not it. They are those trying to pretend that they are it. 
and the professional league doesn't work because they aren't professionals. Having something else other than God and replacing God with something else makes it not work as it's supposed to work. Now finally, the fifth thing we learn is that the wrath of God is revealed in humanity's demise that stems from our rebellion. Now this word reveal has a career in verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, but there's something else that's revealed in God's gospel, and it is the wrath of God. Now, notice, this is framed in the present tense. It's not a future ref. Eric, I've heard that when Jesus comes back, God's going to end evil once and for all, and his wrath is going to fall on evil. That's true. That's future. But notice, this is his wrath in the present. For the wrath of God is revealed, we could write in the word now, right now. Now, he's gonna, he, he introduces the concept for the wrath of God in verse 18. He's going to unpack it. He'll use the expression, how does the wrath of God unfold here? Verse 24, he gave them over. Verse 26, he gave them up. Verse 28, he gave them up. And this is going to be the way that God's wrath is manifested. He lets us go into our indulgence. And our indulgence ties us up into a huge knot And we face the awful consequence of the choices we've made to break the law of God. And in the consequences is an expression of his wrath. By the way, designed all along in the consequences, our faces rubbed in our sinful choices to turn us back to his mercy, what keeps us from what we do deserve, and gives us his grace that we're brought to forgiveness. But you talk about the wrath of God, and immediately you get, hey, I'm out. No way. I do not want a God who is wrathful. It's very clear from Scripture that the God of the Bible is a God of wrath. Now, there are two different words in the New Testament language for wrath, and one is for anger, which is usually our only category for wrath. And it may take us back, and I hope not, but maybe dissimilar to my father, you, you had an angry father who, you know, the kids were always walking around on eggshells, and any time that the father's anger was exacerbated, oh, I mean, everything broke loose. And, and it is especially tragic in discipline when a father disciplines his children in anger. That can have awful effects. And so some of us, we think, wrath of God, why would I want a God Who's angry? It's not angry. That's not the category of this word that is used. It's a focused, controlled, robust response to evil. That's what the word means. By the way, I want a God who responds to evil with wrath. Have you ever watched a news story that was wrenching, it was awful, carnage on kids, women being tragically degraded and treated terribly, and you say to yourself, I, it, it, there just wells up in you a yearning, I wish somebody would face this. That's the wrath of God. 
God's response to evil. By the way, I want evil to go to hell. That's our God. Rather than being repulsed away from a God who is wrath, I'm drawn to a God whose response to evil is wrath. But here's our problem. Since it's just us, we've never seen ourselves as evil. We've never understood just how heinous our sin is to God. And therefore, it's hard for us to imagine that we are living under the wrath of God. And when it's hard for us to imagine, we have little appreciation for the cross of Jesus Christ where that wrath fell on him so you and I could be free from it and have life and forgiveness and have our guilt resolved and our shame taken away and be free from our past. Be free in our present and look forward to a great future because it was all resolved on Good Friday. It's why Jesus said, and he finished the whole thing out before he said, into your hand I commit my spirit. He said, it is finished. That wasn't the cry of a humble victim. That was the cry of a victorious Lord who had finished the work that God had given him to do. And the work was to absorb the wrath of God so we could be free. He took our hell so we wouldn't have to take it when we believe in him. Now have you come to Jesus Christ for such freedom? Have you repented of your sin and acknowledged that it was your sin and my sin that put him on that tree on Good Friday and he resolved it? It is now finished. It's why you come across, we'll get there. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How could it be? Because our condemnation fell on him so it wouldn't fall on us. What a gift is given to us in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, God's wrath is revealed and poured out against our sin. He made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us in order that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. By the way, Hebrews 10.31 is still in vogue this morning. It's still this morning a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet, heaven's door could not be more wide open. Do you know Christ as your Savior? What a joy it would be for us to be beside you. To point you to Him. We can help you this week by an appointment. Your face things this morning. We're here to serve you. All right, three questions and we'll go home. Question number one. Do we enjoy the glory of God revealed in creation? The colonial preacher Jonathan Edwards used to love to walk in the countryside. To walk in what he called a God-saturated world full of his glory. From the time he was a boy of all things that he was fascinated with was spiders. And he loved to watch a spider spin its web. He would love to go out, and we're coming into the fall here in a month. The dew will be more heavy as the temperatures 
cool off a little bit. And I love to see in the morning just a, a, a splendid work of art that a spider's been at all night and the dew hangs on the web. It looks so cool. I love to look at it rather than find it when I'm walking through the woods and I haven't seen it and it's on my face. You know, I don't like that. Oh, the glory of God. It's everywhere. The hue of a flower. Uh, My favorite bird is a wood thrush. Right after God created it, he had it swallow a flute. And now when he opens his mouth, he plays his flute. It is so cool. They hang around my house. I sit on the back porch and I listen to them. And when I hear them, I think of the delight that God took in making that so I would hear it. I remember, Moses' record is that he created all things for our good. And we, 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 would delight, we see them and we delight in them. Recently, in fact, it was when our brother Marvin was in the throes of going to heaven. Why, the day before he went to the hospital, they got a box of Georgia peaches. And then the last thing in the world they wanted to jack around with was Georgia peaches. And they were going to, you know, once you get them to a point, they'll, they'll get ripe and then they're gone. And they were gonna, the whole thing was going to be wasted. And um, I was over there trying to encourage Benita. And she said, Eric, will you do me a favor? And I said, Benita, what do you need? I'll help you. She said, go out there and take some peaches home. They're all going to rot. Somebody's got to get some good out of them. It was one of the easiest errands I ever did, you know. And Andy, the world's greatest baker, made this peach pie to die for. And we ate the first piece. And then we just wanted to indulge ourselves and finish it off right there. It was so good. I mean, just how God made the flavor of a peach. And he made it to please us, expressing something that was in his heart toward us. Creation is laced and full of glories that God wants to give to help us understand who he is. Are we attentive to it at all? Are we living with our eyes open? Do you absorb any glory this week? Our daughter had a baby two Aprils ago, and she, of all things, invited Andy to go in with her. Her husband's a valorous man who uh, is a big game hunter and has hunted all this stuff and gutted everything. And cannot stand a drip of human blood. And Abby was afraid he was going to swoon on her. So Andy went in. And I was struck with what Andy said after it was all over. You know, we've been through the drill. I realized Andy was on the other side of the table this time. But, uh, you know, we went through, we had, God gave us three kids. And it was all glorious. But her outstanding impression was how marvelous God is. And the genius of God in creation to allow life to be sustained in that way. When she was there for the event of birth, she came away singing the doxology in her spirit. God is so cool. God is so great. Do we enjoy the glory of God revealed in creation? Secondly, out of a grateful heart, do we honor the Lord with our living? Did you notice verse 21? What an indictment. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. You say, yeah, Eric, pagans don't acknowledge God. 
But could that phrase, do not honor him nor give thanks, be applied to anyone in the American church who's claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you get out of bed in the morning on a mission? Do I get out of bed on the morning on a mission to honor this one who loved us and gave himself for us and created everything that is? Do we carry around a heart full of thanks? I mean, just get the dipstick down in there this morning. Where are you? Where do you register? Is your heart full of gratitude? Or is it full of fear? Is it full of anxiety? And I don't want to minimize any harsh thing you're going through. Out of a grateful heart do we honor the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12.1 said, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Well, I want to add to that and expand upon that. Remember your creator all the days of your life. Because when you do, it will prompt you, it will prompt us to be more grateful and to be on a mission to honor him. Finally, do we ever ponder the wrath of God that is revealed? You talk about five words that our culture is far away from. For the wrath of God. That's how verse 18 starts. You cannot understand the glory of the gospel of this salvation without understanding the wrath of God. Thinking of it does three things. Number one, it helps us realize the awful nature of sin. God looks at sin differently than we do. Secondly, it brings us to more fully fear the Lord of glory who is holy. In all the most majestic encounters of God and God's people in the Bible, God's people aren't jumping up and down giving God high fives and saying, hey, what up, homie? No, they're face down on the ground before his holiness, realizing something afresh about him and themselves that they weren't attentive to. Finally, it draws out of our soul in fervent praise to Jesus Christ. Gratitude. He took our wrath on the cross and died on our behalf. Five cryptic words begin this section. For the wrath of God. Our culture, being far away from this notion, leads us to be inattentive to it. We live in this culture. But to understand the justice of the wrath of God, And to understand the God of the Bible who responds to evil with revulsion and wrath is to get clear insight into the glory of God's good news, which involves resolving his wrath justly poured out on us in one afternoon on Good Friday. The offer of whoever would believe would be forgiven, would find hope and find life. Hell will be justice. The ones who traded the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, for the fool's gold of created things that are passing away. Now, how is God using his word in your heart today? Let's pray. Grant, Lord, that in this moment, we would all inventory our hearts. Are we living unconscious to the glory of God that is around us? Have we traded out you for lesser things and exchanged our creator for something in creation? Are you calling forth from our hearts idols? 
Are we on a mission to live an honoring life with a heart full of gratitude? Do we really take time to ponder the wrath of God? And what we avoided in the shelter of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He loved us, gave himself for us. Draw our hearts out to you, Lord, as we conclude this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.